The sermon this morning is, uh, as I just said, shared with the kids, out of 1 Samuel chapter 25. It's the story of Abigail and Nabal and David. And you heard me just now share that whole story. I'm not going to rehash it for us, but I do want to look at a few things in it. Um, the very first thing that you need to know, as I studied, I learned um, Nabal in this story, we're told that that's his name, and that the word Nabal or the name Nabal means foolish. Well, how many of you, if you are parents, would actually name your child a fool? Scholars don't believe that the name Nabal was actually his given name. What they believe was that that was a nickname that was given to him. Now, I'm not going to name the person from our community who goes by a nickname, because some of you already know who this person is, but I don't want to embarrass him or his family. But his given name, his christened name, is Michael. But very few people in this community would know who I was talking about if I said Michael. But if I say, and I won't say it because I'm recording this, but if I say his nickname, everyone in this community knows who I'm talking about. For those of you who are not sure who I'm talking about, he has a radio program every Friday night. He plays a washtub bass. He's an incredibly giving and loving human being. And he is known in this community and even in Fairbanks by his nickname, not by his given name. So if you said that nickname, everyone knows who you're talking about. Well, that is what scholars believe this thing is about Nabal. That it's not his given name. They believe it was a different name, but that everyone knew him as the fool. And he even owned it. Because he was just that way. So he enjoyed the notoriety, the, the, the infamous title of, yeah, I'm the foolish guy, but I'm the one with all of the money. The other part of this, if you look in First Samuel chapter 25, it says that this Nabal was a Calebite. Now, Caleb, if you will remember from the earliest, earlier part of the Exodus, Caleb and Joshua were the two of the twelve spies that went into the promised land and came back with a good report. And the other ten had a bad report. And Caleb and Joshua were the only two of that generation who actually got to go into the promised land. And Caleb, at the age of 80 or 100 and something, ended up settling in a place just to the west of the Dead Sea called Paran or Ma'on. And so if you look in 1 Samuel chapter 25 in this story about, um, about David and Abigail and Nabal, it says that Nabal was in Ma'on, which was his, his town. He was also in Carmel, which is where the sheep shearing was taking place. And if you look at a map, it's all in that area just west of the, of the Dead Sea. And it's the area where Caleb lived and, and, and where his family, the Judahites, 
um, received their inheritance. Caleb was a man of great influence and renown in the, in the nation of Israel. To be a Calebite was an honor. But this fool ended up living in such a way that he literally brought dishonor to his family name. He was looked down upon by everyone as a fool, including his own wife, who literally uses it as part of her, her apology and her, her excuse to David as to why he was treated the way he was treated. She said, he's called the fool and he acts the fool all the time. You need to just ignore him. Had I been the one to hear from your people, had I known that you were asking, you would have received all of what you were asking and more. So please, please do not hold it against our house. Why was she doing this? Well, if you look in the, the story when David gets so angry, David literally says, and I don't have the, the verse, but let me just pull it up because I've got it marked. David literally says, I'm going to kill, in my Bible, in my translation, it says, I'm going to kill all of the males. Verse 22. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. That's the, the nice translation. What David literally said, pardon the expression, but this is the truth. This is literally what David said. May God do to my enemies and more than that if I leave one who pisses against the wall alive in the morning. Now what he was talking about was not men. He was not talking about that because in their society men squatted just like women did. He was talking about animals. He was talking about dogs. He was talking about the lowest of the low in their community. The one who hikes his leg against the wall. I'll even destroy that. I am so frustrated and angry and upset. So literally, David goes to his 600 men and he says, we have been embarrassed, humiliated, treated with disdain, and I'm not going to put up with it. And so he tells 400 of the 600, put on your swords. You 200 stay back here at the camp and guard our stuff. The rest of us, we're going to go take care of this Nabal and we're going to show people that nobody treats David and his men like this. Well, Abigail gets word of this from one of the servants. And she does not, notice, she does not go to her husband and try to placate him because she understands and knows he ain't going to listen to her. He, the word in, in the King James is he's churlish. I hate when you have to look up a word. But basically it means surly. Which I had to look up. <laughs> Which means ill-tempered, bad-mannered, mean-spirited. So he responded to David's offer, because David gave his men very specific instructions. He said, Satan and peace to you. Peace to you. Peace to you. Three times. And the way Nabal responds is, in a surly, churlish manner, in ill-mannered, just despicable means. And he looks at, who is David? He's some renegade who's run away from his master, who thinks I'm supposed to support him? Ha! Get out of here. Now, one of the things that 
in our culture and from our perspective, it sounds like David is running a racketeering operation. You pay me some protection money and nothing bad will happen to you. But that's not what's going on here. From our perspective, that's that's what it sounds like. But the reality was, in that culture, there were literally marauding bands who would come across the plains or come across the desert or come out of the hills and they would just take whatever they wanted and they would kill the men that were there and then just take up the animals and whatever and leave. Well, the, the workers of Nabal were not soldiers. They were shepherds. They were carers for the, the flocks of Nabal. And so David literally set up a perimeter. Literally, that's what David did. Not because he was hired to do it, but because it was the right thing to do. That's where they were living. If you go back into chapter 23 and chapter 24, especially in chapter 24, (coughs) excuse me. If you go right back into chapter 24, this is the story where David and his 600 men are hiding in a cave. Now, I never realized how big that cave had to have been. But there were 601 men hiding in the back of a cave. And Saul goes in, King Saul goes in to relieve himself, to go to the bathroom. And David's men come up to David and goes, The Lord has delivered him into your hands, you can kill him right now. And literally David cuts off a corner of his robe and then doesn't touch Saul and then Saul leaves. And then David comes out of the mouth of the cave and says, Saul, look, I had you in my hands, but I let you go. That happens literally just moments before I mean, just in the story, just moments before this episode of Abigail and Nabal. So we understand that David was in the wilderness. He was living in the hills. He had no food or support of his own. Just whatever that they could get through the kindness of other people or God would somehow bless them. And so it was appropriate and right for them to provide protection. Because in that culture... There was an expectation that if you did that for your neighbor, then when your neighbor was celebrating at their harvest or at their shearing time, that they would share with you some of their stuff in thanks and in gratitude for what you had done for them. That was cultural. Okay? It wasn't, it wasn't that anybody was trying to hold anything over anybody. This was expected. This is what normally happened. So David was totally in his right, in, 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 in the right frame when he sent these ten guys. It was Nabal who was the one that was an idiot. It was Nabal who was the one who was breaking protocol. And it was totally appropriate for David to go, excuse me? But God intervened. Abigail responded, and we're told in in this story, she was a very beautiful woman, she was a very wise woman. She responded with great wisdom. She knew to not go to her husband and try to um, to talk him out of what he was doing and to give food. She knew that time was of the essence. As a matter of fact, one of the things that, that I learned as I was studying this was Abigail, well, the question came up in some of the, some of the writers that they said, why in the world would this beautiful, wise woman ever want to marry such a jerk? And they, they, they spoke that the culture of that time was that Abigail didn't have an opportunity to say what she wanted to do or not in that situation. Her mom and dad arranged a marriage for her. 
Now, when her mom and dad are looking for a marriage partner for their daughter that they love dearly and they want to provide for and make sure she's taken care of, what are they going to look for? They're going to look for somebody with some means and some wealth and some, some ability to care for their daughter for the remainder of her life. Well, what a prize. Here we got this guy, whatever his real name was, we don't know. As a young man, he's a Calebite. He has all of this land. He's got all of this wealth. He is an incredible prospect for their daughter. So this young girl gets promised, betrothed to this young man, and they go through the whole process, and he comes, and he's a loving I mean, a fiancé, and he comes, and he takes her into his home, and then he gets up the next morning and says, yeah, well, go make me some breakfast. And that begins her life in this abusive, verbally, if not physically abusive life that she's now in and stuck in. Now, we're not told how old Abigail is. We're not told how old Nabal is. But they have apparently lived together long enough for her to understand how he operates. And to know that it's foolish for her to try and reason with him. And also, she's strong enough as a human being and as a, as a, as a, a Proverbs 31 woman, if you will, who knows how to run her household, that she just simply tells to the servants, listen, go do this, go do this, go do this, go do this, make sure this happens. And one of the other things that was interesting was there was all these cakes of raisins and cakes of figs that she provided. Well, that was a, a delicacy. So she wasn't just providing food. She was doing over-the-top stuff to try and make up for what her husband had done. So she now sends that on ahead, kind of in the, in the same, same way as Jacob and Esau. Remember when Jacob's coming back after being gone for 20 plus years, and he's scared to death that his brother Esau's going to kill him, so he sends all of the stuff ahead of him as an offering to try to soften the fact that he's coming. Uh, uh, Abigail does exactly the same thing. She sends these donkeys ahead who are carrying... Uh, these mules ahead that are carrying these gifts, large amounts of food, large amounts, two, two huge wineskins filled with wine plus all of this food. And then she gets herself ready and she comes up along afterward, but she comes alone. Now, it says that she comes down through the cover of the mountain, if you read in the script, in the story here. And basically what that says is that she's coming through a ravine. And so she comes She's on her donkey coming down through this and she comes through this ravine into an open area that has 401 angry armed men who have just received these donkeys laden with gifts that she sent. And her very first response is she gets on the ground with her face in the dirt. It's all on me. Don't hold it against my husband. Listen, my husband is a Nabal. Everyone knows he's an idiot. Everyone knows that's how he deals with it. You shouldn't have expected anything different. You should have come to me. It's my fault that you got treated the way you got treated. Please, don't take it out on our people. Please, if you're going to take it out on anybody, take it out on me. Don't kill our people. It's not fair to them. They didn't have any control in this situation. If anyone's to blame, it's me, because I know what a fool my husband is. Please, please. Please spare our people. Take it out on me. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. With her face in the ground. And then she talks about how David is going to be honored and lifted up. She talks about how God has set David aside and she understands and knows that he's going to become king. And she literally says, in her wisdom, she says, you don't want your reputation Black marked 
with this kind of an, of a, an event. Because people won't trust you if they see that you can't be trusted. Because anytime somebody turns on you, you're just going to wipe them out? This is not who you are, David. Please, have mercy. In verse 32, David says to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt. And from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, hear that, unless you had come and hurried to meet me, he was on his way to kill every one of them. But because of her swift action. No hesitation. She just did what was right and she went. Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there would not have been one left to Nabal, so much as one, one, one who pisses against the wall. That's basically what that says. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. So then Abigail goes home. Now, where is she going? Back to the life that she's been living. Lo, these 15, 20, 30 years. To this foolish, mean-spirited, ugly man who verbally abuses her and harms her. But at least she was able to save her family. At least she was able to save all of those servants who have so faithfully endured the Baal's junk. So she comes home, and behold, what is he doing? Drunk. He is drunk to the point where he is insensible. He's probably being loud and boisterous, and she just goes, Oh, forget it, I'll talk to him in the morning. And she goes to her tent, and she goes to sleep. And in the morning, when the wine, it says, verse 37, in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, okay, he was no longer drunk, his wife told him all of the things that happened. And his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. What scholars think happened here was Nabal, this foolish, churlish, surly man, hears that his wife has disrespected him, by going against what I said was supposed to happen. This is my house. These are my things. Do you have no say over what's going on? How dare Either he had a heart attack or he had a stroke. Probably a stroke. And he was flat out in a coma for ten days. Until he finally breathed his last. And David hears about what happens. And sends to Abigail. An envoy and says. If you will have me. I would like to have you as my wife. And she says. It's got to be better than what I've been living with. <laughs> and so she joins him. Now. A couple things you need to hear about the story here. This was. 
a political move on David's part. Okay? Abigail owns all of this stuff now. We're not told of any children. She's controlling this, and she, everybody listens to her anyway, and the ball is just the, the... And so David, by marrying Abigail, literally gets all of that land and all of the property, and now he's made an alliance with this part of the nation. In addition to that, Abigail is a very wise counselor. And she has the ability to do pillow talk. Not in the court when they're king and queen, but literally he can go back to her at night and say, mm-hmm. she said, well, what, what about this? What about that? And they bounce things off of each other. An incredible helpmate for David in his work, ultimately. He's not there yet, but he will become king. And she will be bearing a child to him, and she will be part of his household. So God, A, took care of David's honor without David having to do it. So David doesn't have a black mark on his record in the eyes of the people of Judah and Israel. Abigail is rescued from an incredibly horrible life. And Nabal gets what's owed to him. But it's at the hand of God. This is a cool story. As I was reflecting on it, I was was keenly aware that it's a very similar in theme and and in process to Esther. Here we have a woman who is being threatened with the total destruction of her people and no one can do anything to help except her. For such a time as this, you have been brought to this point to do what needs to be done. Now, I'm not saying that God ordained or wanted her to live 15, 20, or 30 years with this surly, churlish brood of a human being. But at the re- but the, the point is, that's her lot. That's where she ended up. And God has used it to prepare her and to train her to be ready for the moment when David needed somebody to come up to him and say, hey, what are you doing, you idiot? Now, she didn't say it that way. But she was effective in keeping David from doing something really stupid. She saved her own people. And then ultimately God raised her up into a position of great authority. Not in their culture because of course she didn't have the ability to be in the throne room. But she still had power. She still had honor. And she got blessing upon blessing upon blessing for her faithfulness. Cool story. Really cool story. But I was asking, Lord, what what is the point? What is it that you want us to get from this, to take away when we walk out of here today? What is it that we need to hold on to? And Lockyer, in his book, All the Women of the Bible, wrote this one sentence about Abigail. The intervention of Abigail in the nick of time, teaches us 
that when we have wisdom to impart, faith to share, and help to offer, we must not hesitate to take any risk that may be involved. Let me say that again. The intervention of Abigail in the nick of time teaches us that we have that when we have wisdom to impart, faith to share, and help to offer, we must not hesitate to take any risk that may be involved. Abigail learned of what her husband had done, and she didn't waste any time. She didn't stew and go, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? She didn't stand outside the ball's tent going, oh, I've got to talk to him and try and give it. None of that. She said, "There's this is what needs to happen. I need to make this happen. I need to make it happen quick. And so she just makes a decision. Boom, 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 boom. Sends it off, gets herself ready, goes, and on her own behalf, I mean, on her people's behalf, she stands there and says, kill me. If anything has to happen, kill me. Don't take it out on all other people. It wasn't their fault. If anyone's its fault, it's my fault. I should have known better than to let you have any, have, let my husband, who's an idiot, have any access to your people. So it's my fault. She walked the path God laid before her with confidence, even though she's scared to death. I mean, she, think of what she was risking. Think about it. A, she was risking the wrath of her husband. I'm not saying he beat her, but I'm telling you, if he treated others who were not part of his household like that, he probably was pretty rude and mean-spirited to her, at least verbally abusive. Probably was physically abusive. She risked, literally, being killed by an angry mob of men. 401 sword-carrying angry men who were out for their honor. And she said, I'm at fault, kill me. Sure. <clears throat> she risked greatly because she knew it was the right thing to do. She forsook her own to do what was appropriate and right. And as a result, thousands of years later, we're still talking about her. So what I encourage each one of you to do is to look in your own life. Now, I know that there's a number of men in here who have already shut down because I'm talking to only to the ladies, but I want you to hear something, guys. Okay? It doesn't mean that, you, that, that just because she was married to some jerk doesn't mean that this story doesn't apply to you because if you work for a jerk, someone who's an authority over you, someone who could make your life miserable if you don't do as they say, when they say, how they say, you have just as much to learn from Abigail's story. Amen. And ladies, if you work in an environment where you got a jerk for a boss, even though you're not married to one, but you, you've got a jerk for a boss, or a jerk for a neighbor, or a jerk for somebody who can make your life miserable, don't allow yourself to be fearful of consequences. When you know the right thing to do, do it. Act the way you're supposed to act, when you're supposed to act. Because God may very well have put you in that moment because you are the one who has all of the skill set necessary to do what is needed. Even if it means your death. Even if it means pain to you. You're the one 
that God has raised up. So walk out of here this morning with that in your pocket. Abigail is an incredible, incredible, incredible example of doing the right thing for the right reasons regardless of the risk involved. Let's pray.